Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Britt Robson, a freelance writer in Minneapolis who primarily covers sports, music, and politics. He's a guy who has had a really hell of a career who kind of started out hitchhiking and doing his own thing and who years later is no longer hitchhiking but still does his own thing. Now I knew of Brit when I worked in Minneapolis at the City Pages which is an alt-weekly and we had a mutual friend who one day told me that he thought we had personality similarities and I didn't think too much of it. I thought it was pretty cool. And after listening to this podcast, I think I kind of enjoy that. I, I really have a lot of respect for Britt Robson. I think he's a real cool guy, and I think you'll enjoy this week's episode. And if you do, I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So I'm here with uh, Britt Robson and uh, Elroy the... English Bulldog. English Bulldog, whose tongue is too big for his mouth. Yep. And has a bent right leg, so he's named after Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. They're in for the uh, Los Angeles Rams in the late 50s. And now he's rubbing his face into the rug, which he does to get some of the guck out of his eyes. He's totally a, a genetic mutant that, uh, as are all bulldogs, they um, only can be born through a cesarean section because their heads are too big, among other things. I mean, bulldog owners live with the guilt that all the things we find cute about them are what some of the reasons they have <laughs> difficulty existing. But I'm a sucker for bulldogs with smushed faces, and he's got one of the more smushed faces in the world. So He's a good dog. I do that, too, when I'm looking for attention. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you're, you're, you do a lot of sports, right? I write about music, sports, and politics uh, is the way I present myself, and it's... Uh, it's really important for me to write about more than one thing because when I write about just one thing, uh, all the adjectives seem the same. And I mean, especially music, for example. Uh, there are certain words I use when I write about music that are my words that describe the kind of music I like. And if I like albums often enough, then it gets to be, you know, those words feel the same, or like athletes that I really like, or politicians that I admire or dislike. Uh, so it, you know, it may not be that all those words crop up, but if you write about something that's the same subject all the time, I don't think you use your. I think certain words go with certain subjects. I guess is what I'm saying. And uh, in order not to bore myself, sometimes it's good to keep mixing up the uh, subject matter. Sure. I mean, there are stories. Anytime, anytime somebody gets killed, they were slain in the paper, right? <laughs> right, right. Who says slain? You know? Right, exactly. I'm sorry to hear about your grandfather who was slain. <laughs> you know? um, what's uh, so? How long have you been a journalist? Who? Probably, I think the first thing I ever wrote was for the university. Uh, well, actually, first thing I ever wrote for pay was a couple of concert reviews for the University of Washington Daily in 1974. So that would be 40 years. 40 years right now. You gave me a time peg. We need that in the news business, so thank you. <laughs> 40 years. Uh, were you out there for school? or? Yeah. You I, had, uh, I went for 
two years at Ohio University and uh, decided to drop out of school. Hitchhiked all around the country, got totally enamored with Jack Kerouac, uh, particularly the book The Dahmer Bums, which has got uh, Gary Snyder as Jappy Ryder, the main character. And he wrote a, lot, wrote a lot about the Pacific Northwest, and so uh, I applied to a bunch of schools in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and the one that appealed to me the most was the University of Washington, which was based in Seattle, an urban environment. And so I went there. Uh, and um, yeah, that's how that came about. I've, I went to school, two different colleges, for about four and a half years and have no degree. Proud to say. Proud to say? You're not going to do what David Brower did and go, I'm not do it go back? Now. Actually, I did. I mean, one of the things that does make me feel a little bit bad about it, uh, now my father has, has passed away. He... he he was not slain. He died uh, of old age in uh, May, just a few months ago. But I always did say that I would do my best to get back and finish my degree because uh, it was something he always wanted for me. And he, after a while, once I got established, he just wanted me to, you know, make my own way. Uh, he said it, it didn't matter to him. But every now and then, when I, I reflect, now it's a point of pride that I don't have a degree that uh, I was able to do what I wanted to do without the benefit of a piece of paper. But to the extent that um, I said I would do that or I would try to do that to the best of my ability to my father and I didn't do it, I feel bad about it. Yeah. But that's about all. It's about the only reason. Otherwise, I like the idea of, you know, he was a high school dropout. He was a quote-unquote self-made man who taught me how to think in many ways, taught me how to argue. Um, very influential on my thought process. What drew you to writing? Uh, Was it the Kerouac thing? Well, uh, the Kerouac thing drew me to longer form writing. I was always very interested. I mean, I was a frustrated musician. Um, I was a drummer in high school. You know, wasn't a good, you know, wasn't a very good musician. Um, and um, I was a poet, and uh, you know I had a few poems published, and you know all you know kicked around was part of the Dogtown Poetry Group in Seattle, and um, it was fun, but it didn't pay any bills, and so I saw journalism as a way to uh, make money while writing and working on my poetry, and after a while. Um, it began to become something that, you know, without trying to sound too pretentious, uh, I felt could be a somewhat artistic endeavor that would also pay the bills. And so I became comfortable with that idea and I began to realize that, you know, the alternative, nobody makes their living as a poet. They become professors in ivory towers and uh, since I wasn't even going to get my degree, uh, that aspect wasn't going to happen. So uh, I think it was uh, a way to express my creativity as best I could and also uh, have access to people I admire or people, you know, have access to news, have access to political figures, have access to musicians I like, sports figures I like, you know, games I appreciate, uh, sounds I appreciate people I appreciate and one of the ways to do that 
especially in the 70s and 80s when I was coming up, when to be a journalist offered more opportunities than I think it does now, um, was to uh, freelance and uh, eventually get uh, enough clips put together to you know, get hired by somebody to, to write something, to, to, to be told you were going to get paid for something before you wrote it, which was uh, the know, dream process. Yeah, well, I mean, it was one of those things where you could, uh, not writing on spec was a good step forward, you know. Uh, I probably did uh, between a half a dozen and ten stories, some of them, you know, long, some of them two or three, four thousand words long, without having any idea whether or not I could find a place to publish them. So, and that's even, that, that's a tough thing too, is to present yourself as somebody who's doing a story and say, where are you doing the story from? And you have to kind of figure out a way to elide that question. <laughs> so, yeah, those were the days. What was, um, do you remember, so your first published piece for pay is a music review? It was. And then? For Mo, it was a Mose Allison review for the University of Washington Day. Good review? Yeah, actually, I like Mose Allison quite a bit. He's got a you know nice flat pan, deadpan vocals, and uh, interesting kind of stride piano style. He's his own you know own person. He's got a little bit of Delta blues in him, and also a little bit of singer songwriter in him. He's, he's a musician I admire. And so you started uh, freelancing longer stuff, and yeah, I started. Uh, well, I mean, the first magazine story I wrote was for Ohio Magazine in 1975, or maybe it was 1976. I think it was 1975, on uh, a guy who is now much known for something much different, Jerry Springer, who uh, at the time was um, uh, running, was the mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio, and was running for governor of Ohio, and. Uh, was that until he got waylaid by a uh, sex scandal where he literally wrote a check to a prostitute, which is one of the stupidest things any politician could ever do, literally write a check what that could be canceled and thus seen as evidence. What kind of prostitute would take a check? <laughs> Obviously one that slept with Jerry Springer. <laughs> I don't know. I think he was even married at the time. I'm not positive of that, but... Anyway, he was the mayor of Cincinnati, and uh, here's a great quote, as you might expect. And uh, even back then, yeah, yeah, he was, you know, he was young and politically ambitious, and uh, and you know, it was a story. I was proud of the story. It worked out well. I got to talk to a lot of different people, and uh, that actually is where I started to write. Most of my early long form journalism was for city magazines, and initially it was for Cincinnati magazine. Uh, but that that particular piece is for Ohio Magazine, which is based in Columbus. That's a hell of a first magazine story. Yeah, what was the what was the gist of it? Just basically, Izzy well, it was called Born to Run, and the question was: This mayor of Cincinnati, who's this hotshot young up and coming politician, is he going to run for governor? Uh, and the uh, picture of it, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, had just come out fairly recently. And so uh, Springer had this advisor, Mike, I don't even know if I remember his last name. He's a kind of a stocky guy. He was white, but otherwise kind of resembled Clarence Clemens. And so Springer, the picture was of Springer leaning back on, on this advisor, Mike, uh, the way Springsteen leans on Clarence Clemens <laughs> on the cover of Born to Run. So it was nice artwork for this piece. And uh, 
Springer was a good interview, and he emigrated from England. I remember he, uh, his mother wanted him to fit in, and so he was. Uh, uh, she found out that uh, that Americans like baseball, so she bought him a New York Yankees uniform, and then he wore it to school for like the first three or four days until people <laughs> kicked the shit out of him. <laughs> and so, uh, and it was, so it was just stories like that. It was an interesting, you know. I mean, Springer was. Uh, I mean, I think he consciously carved out a niche for himself as a, the equivalent of a shock jock on television. Right. Uh, you know, a shock TV guy, lowest common denominator. Um, and I think part of that was because his political career was finished and he was always a little bit of a hustler, as most politicians are. But uh, as a result, you know, made for a good, good story in terms of just he was very free and open. Um, it was good circumstance. I mean, a, a mayor... The story was about, are you going to run for governor? Well, he could be coy and cute, and uh, you know, he knew the very fact that I was speculating about it was good for him, you know, and the very fact that a magazine statewide wanted to publish something like that uh, would be nothing but good for him. So it was a favorable environment all the way around to produce a decent story. How'd you get that assignment? I was living in Cincinnati at the time, and I probably had written some things for... Um, at the time, I was writing for any alternative weekly, uh, you know, that existed. This is mid-70s, so it was really hit and miss, especially in a place like Cincinnati. I think there was a magazine, or I mean a weekly, called The Jester back then. I think that was the one. Um, later, I would write for one called The Mona Adams Outlook, which was a little bit more credible. But The Jester was like a classic ad rag to some extent that tried to put... A decent piece of journalism on its cover and I wrote about politics for them and music and stuff and so uh, I think maybe if I remember right um, that's how I got it uh, and then from that assignment I got uh, a guy from Sport magazine way back in the day it used to be Sport was this glossy monthly wanted me to write about Tom Cousineau, who was a linebacker for Ohio State that was going to go play for the Cleveland Browns. And uh, this was up in Columbus. And uh, I was still in my Kerouacian phase. I I remember hitchhiking to the, uh, Cousin, the Tom Cousineau interview from Cincinnati to Columbus, and I did most of my traveling hitchhiking back then. I was in my, you know, 75, I was 22. So, uh, but it was... Uh, you know, when they said um, they were going to, you know, put me up in a hotel and give me mileage and all this other stuff, which I didn't know about until later on when they asked me to submit this expense report. And I said, well, you know, I hitchhiked up to the interview and stayed with a friend in Columbus, you know. And I was like, I didn't know any better, so. Didn't give you, uh, you should have made up some expenses. Yeah, well, you know, back then, I was just... There's been a couple of times. There was another time where um, somebody, Cole, called me. This was after I was... Uh, I'd moved to Minnesota, and now I'm jumping way ahead, but this was in uh, 85. We just... My wife and I just moved to Minnesota, and um, I wrote this long piece for uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine on the healthcare movement that happened here. HMO movement had really pretty much started here. Paul Elwood and some others, that's my dog shaking his collar. 
And so um, it was, uh, this guy called me up and said, uh, uh, I represent somebody in the healthcare department at, at 3M. And um, this is my dog breathing heavily. Uh, and so uh, we'd like you to, have you ever written any speeches? And I said, uh, no, I haven't. Um, but I'd certainly be willing to try. And, um, and so he said, well, we'd like you, you know, we read your piece on healthcare, the HMO movement, and we think, you know, you can do this. You know, we want you to come in and talk to this guy at 3M. What's your rate? And so I said, just pulling something out of my ass, um, $15 an hour. You know, this is back in 85, which sounded like a lot of money. That's a million dollars. And he laughed, and he said, we'll pay you 30. And <laughs> uh, it was like, you know, which kind of, the reason that I thought of that is when you said, you know, what about the, uh, you could have just made up something about room and board. I've, when you start off freelancing and, uh, you know, you find yourself somehow uh, getting out over your skis wage-wise, you have no idea, you know, what to ask for. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and, and you know, the amount of money I got paid was not as important to me, especially back then, as, you know, just building up a body of work and getting respect to my peers and finding places that I could write that I really wanted to see my name in. And so um, the fact that this guy was saying, you know, you're going to pay me $30 an hour to write speeches for... Uh, uh, this guy from 3M and from that I wrote speeches for some guy at Medtronic and uh, eventually became a speechwriter for Governor Rudy Perpich for uh, almost two years uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. But Perpich is that guy who got slammed by Newsweek is like the craziest. Governor Goofy, right? Governor right? Goofy. Yeah. Well, and the thing about Perpich was he was, I connected with him. I wrote this piece, I mean, I'm jumping all over the place uh, so forgive me if that's, you want to put me on task. But, um, my son, my only child, was born extremely prematurely in 1987. Uh, he was due in June and born in February. He was born at 24 weeks gestation, one pound, nine ounces. Uh, and so I wrote a first-person account of this for Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine. And um, it, it had a big impact. It created uh, you know, a lot of people... Uh, liked it and it won awards and people wanted me to write for them, you know, uh, good housekeeping type magazines and stuff, markets that I never knew anything about. And uh, it was right around that time that uh, Rudy Perpich's son, Rudy Jr., uh, read this piece and his then speechwriter was moving into another position within the organization and they needed a speechwriter and he said you got to get this guy because he he writes good emotional material at the time Perpich was thinking about running for governor um, or no excuse me he was governor he was thinking about running for president and so uh, which now sounds fairly far-fetched but so anyway they called me up and um, they um said, you know, come in and, and, and interview. And when I went in and interviewed, uh, he reminded me a lot of my father. 
my father was a high school dropout and Perpich was a dentist and everything, but Perpich was very, very much a self-made man. He was a uh, immigrant from Croatia who didn't know how to speak English for his five years. He was here. He was born on the Iron Range. His father was a miner. Um, and so he's a real meat and potatoes guy. And uh, what was fascinating about Perpich, and the reason he was called Governor Goofy, was because he was so idiosyncratic. He was the opposite of smooth. And what came out of his mouth sometimes, um, people regarded as goofy because he didn't, he wasn't, you know, uh, poll tested. He wasn't, you know. One of the reasons he was called Goofy is because he wanted to use Minnesota wood uh, in a chopsticks factory and send the chopsticks to China, uh, which sounds crazy. But at the time, he had just come through uh, uh, working in business for controlled data and was sent overseas and was ahead of the curve, actually, in terms of export states, state governments rather than the federal government, exporting to foreign countries. Um, and he was ahead of his, you know, the reasons he was called Goofy in some respects was because he was uh, ahead of his time. And um, which is why when Gorbachev visited the United States, one of the three places in the United States he came to was Minneapolis to meet with Perpich, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and talk to Perpich. Perpich had these international connections. But so anyway, the thing about Perpich, I was his speechwriter. Perpich could read, but was not a really fabulous reader. And certainly in terms of reading out loud, um, was not smooth. If he had a teleprompter, he was okay, but that was only for the really, really big speeches. Most of the time, you just hand him text. Well, here's the thing about Perpich. You'd write a speech for him, You'd write it as good as could be, and I learned his rhythms and all that other stuff. But if he just looked down at the text and something in the text reminded him of something, a story or an example of what was on the page, he would launch into an anecdote, and it would be from the heart, and it would be beautiful, and it would he'd he'd have the crowd in the palm of his hand, and then he'd return to the text. And you could just feel the energy in the room plummet. You know, I mean, it was just—he, you know, he was a terrible reader of speeches. So as a speechwriter, it was—it was comical. I mean, when I would go out with him, I traveled with him quite a bit. You know, I'd be sitting in the room and listening to Perpich, and uh, when he go away from my words, he was magic. When he read the words I had written down, it was awful. So it was kind of an interesting experience in that way. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I hadn't realized you'd done speech writing. You've done a tremendous amount of writing in mm-hmm. all sorts of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that part of that just from being a hustler as far as the Well, I've always wanted the freelance. I mean, the reason I actually... The, um, the first time I was ever uh, had a health insurance gig and paid, you know, with Social Security coming out of my check as a writer was in 87 after I'd been doing it for like... 12, 13 years, and it was because my son was born, and um, it quickly became evident that my wife was probably going to be the better full-time caregiver than I was. My my son was, um, I mean, it was heavy-duty times. It was a, he needed to uh, get 
nourishment in him to grow new lung tissue. And if he didn't, his scarred lungs would would eventually, uh, you know, get to the point where he'd suffocate. And so you take this little eyedropper or whatever and, and put stuff in his mouth and and try to get it in, and then he'd vomit it all up, and you just you know, it would it'd drive you crazy. The pressure was intense. After a while, we eventually had to do what's called gavage feeding, where you thread a little tube down his throat and then pour it into uh, a funnel into his throat. But if you threaded the tube the wrong way and it landed in his lungs and you poured it, you'd kill him. So there's all this high-stakes stuff going on. We had a chart for all the medical stuff and everything. And, it, you know, I was the primary caregiver for like the first four or five months of his life until I got this, this gig with Perpich. But... Um, Robbie is just better temperamentally suited for that. My wife, who is this phenomenally kind and wonderful person who, uh, you know, I've been extremely happily married to for 30, 30 years. But um, anyway, the hustle aspect of it, I always wanted to write about a variety of things and write about things I wanted to write about. Well, that's extremely difficult to do. Uh, it worked pretty well at City Pages for two stints, one of about four or five years and another for about another four or five years, separated by about three or four years of freelancing when I wanted to do it. And then uh, health insurance again, I got in the way. Uh, Cobra ran out and uh, it just made more sense to do the health insurance gig again. But my preference is to be a freelance writer, to wake up in the, in the morning not knowing where I'm going to write unless I figure it out. Uh, now it's not quite that loose. You know, now I have steady stuff at eMusic and steady stuff at MinPost. And uh, and until recently, uh, when politics in Minnesota kind of went under, uh, I had steady stuff at politics in Minnesota. But um, I do. I enjoy the, I guess you could call it the hustle aspect. I, I, I just... I've turned down staff assignments or at the very least, um, you know, regular gigs, health insurance gigs in music and sports and politics uh, simply because it meant that I would have to write about just that probably most of the time. I mean, I turned down uh, a basketball gig because they wanted me to write about basketball 12 months a year. Well, I don't want to write about basketball in the summertime when all you're doing is listening to agents try to spin you on where their client may or may not want to go and executives trying to spin you about, you know, what they're going to offer or not offer and charting the 10 best power forwards you think are going to be, you know. But none of that is based on anything going on because there are no games being played. And the reason I started writing about basketball to begin with is because I love the game. Uh... I like to analyze the games as they happen, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in the business of listening to people that uh, are being less than forthcoming with me. I might as well, you know. Anyway, that kind of thing. I want to do what I want to do, and I'm willing to get paid a lot less money to do that. And consequently, I do get paid a lot less money. <laughs> Yeah, you're one of the things you're you're most well known for, right? Is writing about the Timberwolves, right? And writing about basketball. That's probably the steady. That's the steady assignment. It's not the steady gig, 
I mean, I've written about the Timberwolves for probably half a dozen publications, but I've written about them every year since 1990. So I'm the dean, since they've only been in existence since 1988, I'm the, the dean of NBA writers when it comes to the Timberwolves. What's it like to be an NBA writer, to cover a team like well, that? Well, I mean, I kind of made it up as I went along, but um, when I started in 90, I was writing for City Pages, and uh, it was a weekly or bi-weekly column. I would only write about it, you know, once or once a week or once every two weeks. So it was, you know, semi, you know, the pieces were about 2,000 words, and uh, they were either a, kind of a re uh, synopsis of the team's play over the previous week or 10 days, or it was kind of a feature on a guy or an aspect of the team. It could be whatever I wanted it to be. Um, what really helped I mean, what really blew open the, the Timberwolves beat for me was blogs. Um, you know, when City Pages began to want to feature, you know, citypages.com. And the guy who was the, you know, the uh, web guy at the time said, you know, you'd be, this would be really good for you, you know. And shut that door. Um, and so, um, Um, so anyway, um, so I started to write after almost every game, just basically analyze and recap the game, and um, it was it was great. I mean, you know, just you put together fifteen hundred words without thinking about you know you had to get it in for the next day. It was kind of like uh, the daily guys and the newspaper biz would give you. Uh, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, the game story. And I would just give analysis and impressions, and, and I was writing for people who had, I believe, a deeper appreciation of the game and wanted a little bit more sophisticated analysis. Um, and so I was able to write for a readership that would come to the site, and then I was able to engage those people in comments sections, which I've always loved, you know, I mean... Having smart people give you feedback on what you have written within 24 hours of having written it is a dream for me. I mean, I love that. Uh, because the best writing should provoke a conversation. And if you can be among the people doing the conversing on something you've written, uh, plus the fact that a lot of the people who were in my comment section really knew a hell of a lot about basketball. And so they were educating me as, you know, it was a shared community and still is. I mean, most of, there's a lot of people in my, you know, I have a comments section at MinPost and, uh, you know, some of the same folks are still there from the old City Pages days. And then it went to uh, the rake and then the rake became Secrets of the City and then uh, I did it for SportsIllustrated.com, although it was more just general NBA rather than the Wolves. And then I went back and I did it from in post, and that's where I am now. So, but I, I, I love it. I mean, I love, uh, and the game has changed. Writing about the game has changed so much, and the game itself, you know, it's the analytics and uh, what uh, baseball would call sabermetrics. Uh, you know, having a different way to analyze the game in a more scientific fashion is great. You know, it's another tool. So that you know, it's it's. 
it, we are in a golden age of basketball writing. Um, it is phenomenal how many great basketball writers there are out there. And that's because the internet allows people to just get in. And a lot of these people have embraced analytics and the best ones have embraced analytics and combined it with their own love of the game and that's how you, that's the, where the best writing is is the intersection between measurement and appreciation for the most part over the period that you've been writing for the about the wolves they haven't been very good throughout that no. right no for they've the won part? uh they've won one playoff series they haven't been in the playoffs in 10 years uh they were in the playoffs eight years in a row during the heyday of kevin garnett but um even then, they didn't get out of the first round all but one of those years. You do much writing. Have you done much writing about Garnett? I did a lot. You know, obviously, when he was here and he was the superstar, um, I did. I did a lot of features about him. Um, I was always, I just, I love the guy. I mean, I think he's, uh, I mean, he's got his foibles. Um, but I think that... Uh, he, the, the beat guys used to, the daily beat guys used to hate him because he would take so long getting out of the locker room, out of the shower. But once he sat down with you, which could be as much as 45 minutes after a game, he just gave you great material. And he was really passionate, really smart. And it was kind of fun to be covering the team when he came to the team as a 19-year-old kid, you know. Um, I remember his first time getting flustered. He was doing this uh, promo that he had to read, and he, he couldn't get it. And you could just see, he just felt so much pressure to to read a promo. I mean, he was just this teenage kid. And uh, to see him grow into one of the greatest defensive players in NBA history and to would be what, what I would consider one of the top 25 players ever to play the game, um, it was fun. It was great to watch. And there was a period from like about 2002 to 2005 where he played basketball as well as I've ever seen it played. You know? So it was fun to have a front row seat for that. When you, as a as a writer, you know, because you, you see a guy like him and you actually see him grow up, right? Right. And you're, at the time he's playing, I don't know if you're quite old enough to be his father, but you're probably close to it, right? Yeah, although I never regarded it that way. I mean, well, I'm, not, the, I'm not saying. No, I mean, one of the things that is really fascinating is that um, you kind of do have to uh, you have to know your relationship. I mean, I mean, you could see me. The people listening can't, but I'm a 61 year old guy. I'm bald. <laughs> I'm white. You know, I'm I'm not really uh, dumpy, but I'm not ripped. You know. And so when I walk into a locker room, I mean, all these athletes have just heard asinine questions from people who look like me for most of their career. And they have a right, based on their experience, to expect me to be something of a doofus. And so it really is incumbent upon me to dissuade them from that impression without trying too hard. You know, for a while... When I looked a little younger, when I was in my 40s and 50s, and I, you know, I, I love hip hop music. It's one of the things, especially I used to write about a lot more than I do now. But um, I used to be able to make hip hop the common ground because most of the people obviously were black in the NBA. And so, um, but now 
And that's what I say about trying too hard. I noticed a couple of times where guys I didn't know, and I'm getting, you know, I'm getting up there, and one, I look older, and two, my grasp of hip-hop, I have kind of um, gotten too old for current hip-hop. You can always tell when you don't like music is when you think it all sounds the same. And uh, contemporary hip-hop sounds very similar to me with certain, you know, guys like Danny Boy and some others are big exceptions, but, uh, you know, Big Crit and Kendrick Lamar. But there are people in hip-hop that everybody likes that I don't like. I'm too old. I'm too old for it. But so anyway, to um, to try to make that connection with people, you know, it was the oddity factor. I remember with KG, he used to be, he's a big... Uh, uh, a DMC guy, and uh, um, and so it was one of those things where when I would reference different crews, Puffy's crew, there was a guy in Puffy's crew, and I mentioned that, and he went, oh, let's look at you, and then after a while we began <laughs> to talk and everything, and you know, well, with DMX's Rough Riders was one of those things where we would, you know, would be talking about it, and uh, just you know, we we developed a bond that way, and uh, he knew I knew the game, and he was a big student of the game. So you know, I was able to get in some really nice one-on-one -on -one conversations with him. After all, the beat guys would have to leave to do their stories, and my luxury was not having I mean, to do that. But in terms of being significantly older than him, what you want to do is forget those relationships. You want to forget the artificiality of age and all these other things and what you want to do is try to connect on a level that has nothing to do with any of that stuff if you possibly can and that's harder and harder for me to do so as a result I interact less with players than I used to because I don't want to force it sure but it's uh, it's just interesting to see people go through life phases that you've already gone through right yeah except it's I mean, these guys, the, 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 one of the fascinating things is that the guys who are considered scrubs, who are derided by me as terrible players, are making a million dollars a year, you know? I mean, the most I ever made in my life was like $52,000 in a year. Uh, so uh, it takes 20 years of my best year. <laughs> to hit one season of a guy who can't play, you know? Right. And so, um, as a result, their life choices and their life passages are almost in a different universe That's than true. mine, you know? And so, the relatability, I guess one of the reasons I say I don't want to um, have those artificialities of age and income and those other things is because I see so frequently, unless so now, I think, but it used to be, I would see, you know, especially aging white sports writers would resent young black athletes that they were covering for the money. You know, they, they wanted them to act a certain way. They didn't want them to act out, you know. And they had no clue that one of the reasons these people were probably able to play as well as they were and probably able to relate to their fan base and probably able to create something within themselves that made them so great was because they had no use for the system of organized thought and values that these these guys grew up with. You know, I mean, it, it was a new era. It was a new way to think and act and be 
and um, you know, uh, Bob Cousy and Alan Iverson both played basketball, but they are night and day in terms of you know the errors they represent because the errors themselves are night and day, and so. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think you, what I try to do anyway is relate to guys as much on their terms as I can because that's the only way I'm really going to understand them. If I try to have them and their behavior and their attitudes resonate within me, I'm going to be less successful in figuring them out. Sure. I'm going to be more successful in figuring them out if... What can resonate with me is we both love the game of basketball. And so I know the game of basketball. I know the game they're playing. And so that's where I can make my connection with them. I know when somebody is trying to attack an opponent trying to or trying to defend somebody who is attacking them, what they're doing and how they're thinking. That's where I'll have this like commonality of interest. But when it comes to who they are as people and their lifestyle and everything. I'm best trying to accept my limitations and go from there. Do you have favorite stories you've done? Um, I guess so. I don't think about it very often, to be honest with you. I mean, there, there's one story I did. For some reason, there's a story I did about... Uh, it was for City Pages, and it was about uh, this community in Maple Grove, which was resisting low-income housing at the time. And um, it was just, I think I was able to capture something that's very difficult to capture, which is um, a combination of fear and venom and uh, a dynamic in society where people at that time, this is probably late 80s, the story, early 90s, people escaping to a suburb and wanting to close the door behind them and not have, you know, the messiness of probably where many of them got their paychecks as they came into work um, intrude upon them. And um, I found some people who were really perceptive about it, and I found some people who really embodied the kind of prejudices that I thought were emblematic of that mindset. And I wrote it well, and I was really proud of that story. Um, so I guess that would be one. I've written about my mother's death. She died uh, at the age of 59 in 1988 when I was 35 of cancer, and I've written about my son's birth. Um, and I wrote a story about my father on Father's Day and I like all of those stories because um, I think one of the things I do well is um, I avoid or undo sentimentality. I think the best way to pay tribute to somebody, whether it's my son or my father or my dying mother, is to be as honest as I can about who they are and how they came to be who they are. And so, um, because that credibility will make my praise of them legitimate in the eyes of the reader. And so, I like those stories I did about them. But, to some extent, 
I think those are fish in the barrel stories. You know, I mean, those are stories. That if you're going to write about your mother, your dying mother, or your prematurely born son, you know, you have that built-in factor that you know the very essence, the drama of it. People are going to want to read it, and if it's personal about a family member, they're going to really want to read it. I think it's far harder to to talk about accurately portray the mindset of a second ring suburb that doesn't want low income housing. So I'm prouder as a writer of that story than I am about the personal stuff. Sure. But it's it's still stuff that has meaning for you, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean yeah. everything I mean hopefully I get there every now and then. I mean they're, they're You'd like to say you'd never jaded, but of course there are times, you know, there's a review of a record that I thought I was going to like that I don't like, uh, that I, you know, um, I don't want to be unfair and rip this artist because I've liked their past work and maybe somebody has never heard this artist and if they read my negative review about this person <laughs> so I'm conflicted there at the same time you're, you know, you're bound to determine to accurately represent your feelings about the record you can get jaded that way if you put too much thought into that it'll just wear you down over you know, a, a 300 word review uh, so you pretty much you go on automatic pilot and you write who, what, when, where, why so there are definitely times where you get jaded or, you know, you write a story. When I was at City Pages, if I was working on a big story and I had to do a little story, to, you know, to fulfill uh, a need in the newspaper, you know, maybe I didn't pay as much attention to that story as I should have. Um, but for the most part... How could you? If everything I write... I try to have everything I write mean something to me. Um, and I know that, you know, that sounds like boilerplate bullshit but I mean it is if I'm not going to work for an organization that pays me a lot of money and provides me with financial security then I need to live up to the positive aspects of what I'm doing which is that I get to pretty much do what I want. I get to write my own ticket. And if I'm going to write my own ticket and I'm still being jaded, then I'm really uh, cheating. I'd be better off taking the money. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm cheating the process. I'm not living up to essentially the kind of writer I want to be. So, I mean, even if it's, you know, not a very important story, uh, if it's a story that I... Most of the, almost everything I propose, I mean, almost everything I've written, I've proposed. You know, there are exceptions. Somebody will call me up and say, hey, "You want to do a story about this?" But for the most part, my relationship with the people I write for, I get to say what I want to write about. And so, um, you know, it's one of those situations where if I if I've called the story, then it better have meaning to me. I better see it through, and I better do a good job with it because, you know. In freelance, uh, you're only as good as your reputation, and your reputation is only as good as what you've done recently. I mean, who wants to put their name on a piece of crap story, too, right? Right, right, exactly. You did a you did a recent thing with uh, MinPost for the start about the Star Tribune's new owner, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Like you got this. Who happens to be the Timberwolves owner? So it was fairly easy. Um, yeah, so that's where that came from. Yeah, that's where that came from, and uh, for whatever reason. You know, Glenn Taylor is his name. 
uh, he tells me that the reason he talks to me is because I know basketball and he knows I know basketball. Um, but he is one of those guys, I think, whenever I talk to him, his candor is just stunning to me. He'll say things that very frequently compromise him in terms of the eyes of the people reading the story. And um, it's not my job to say, hey, you know, I wouldn't say that if I were you, you know. But, um, you know, and so I have a weird kind of loyalty to Glenn Taylor. Um, you know, you, you never want to bias yourself to the point where um, you're compromising your, your integrity as a journalist. But I have a soft spot for him because he's given me so many uh, pieces. I mean, I've interviewed him three or four times about his team, about the Timberwolves. And the first couple of times, especially, that I did it, I mean, he talked about trades that were going to happen that didn't happen, who he liked and who the coach <laughs> liked and didn't like, who's the general manager, who was going to leave the team. I mean, just all this in-house stuff. And so, you know, that was actually a story that MinPost said, you know, hey, you want to interview Glenn Taylor? He's buying the Star Tribune. I said, sure. I was down in Florida taking care of my father at the time. He was, he was dying. And I said, um, you know, once this is all over. I would, I would love to come back and do that. And so it so happened that that's the way it worked out. And um, But once again, he said, you know, um, I think the paper will be less liberal after I buy it. Well, you know, I mean, for an owner of a newspaper to say, I'm going to change the political content of that paper, um, which is pretty much what he said, is controversial stuff. So once again, Glenn Taylor comes through. <laughs> I'm sure uh, that's funny that he talks to you because you like basketball and know basketball I think that's the reason I mean I, I when I've asked him I say you know what I say I'm terrified that he's going to stop talking to me um, so you know I say you know thanks as always Glenn it's a pleasure and so on and so forth and um, and when I said it one time after uh, we had talked again about the Timberwolves he goes I like talking to you because you know what you're talking about you you know the game and so on and so forth so when I we kind of sidled over to the uh, Star Tribune conversation I was hoping he'd be giving me the same candor and he did and I also I just think in tribute to Glenn Taylor um, I will say that the guy has the community at heart and he bought the Star Tribune as a community asset, less to make money than to um, keep it as a community asset. Now, he also is naive enough to think that maybe he will have control over the political content, either directly or indirectly. Um, I find that to be, um, as long as it can happen, something that is charming about him that he would think that he could do that I mean he's not some guy I mean if he really was nefarious about it he wouldn't say a word and he'd just go ahead and try to do it you know um, so he's an interesting combination of things he's a billionaire so um, he's made some really raw arguably cruel decisions I don't think you'd get to be a billionaire without you know cutting people's legs off on numerous occasions along the way. I mean, I'm, I'm not naive in that respect. Um, so I'll never not understand 
the kind of person I'm probably dealing with, you know. Um, I, you know, billionaires are ruthless people. They have to be to be a billionaire unless they inherited it, and he didn't. He's a self-made man. Um, that said, there is a side of Glenn Taylor, and it's a large side of him, that um, is a genuine, you know, decent, uh, caring guy. So it's an interesting combination, and I have an interesting relationship with him, but I'm glad for it. Do you think of yourself as a self-made man? No. Um, Because it's an important, it seems like it's an important concept. It is a, it's a, well, I mean, uh, part of it is I, it feels like bragging if I say I'm a self-made man. I mean, I was the only son in a really patriarchal family. I was the favored person in my family. Um, I was born in 1953. Um, When I went to school, first of all, my mother read to all of us children and I through uh, I was born on an estate uh, that my father was the grandfather I mean my grandfather was the gardener of the uh, estate and my father was born in the grandfather's cottage we lived in a shotgun apartment over above a eight car garage and there was a tennis court outside my bedroom window growing up this is in Brookline Massachusetts uh, first nine years of my life but I say all that because um, the chauffeur is the person that showed me the sports pages and showed me the standings where the Red Sox were and that got me in the conjunction with my mother reading to us every night stories encouraged me to read so I began reading at a very young age I went to school um, and the first things we learned about in you know in history was the American Revolution. Well, the American Revolution happened in my backyard at the time. You know, Lexington, Concord, these are all next door to Brookline. You know, this is this right near Boston. So all the stuff was there. 1960, I'm seven years old. The presidential candidate is the congressman from my district. John F. Kennedy was elected president. So everything felt very, very egocentric. I mean, American history, current events, only son in a very patriarchal family, you know, living on this estate, even though I'm not a part of the estate. It felt really, really pampered. It felt really like everything was grooved for me. And consequently, um, I grew up with an inordinate amount of self-confidence, I think. And I think part of the reason for that is because I had a lot of advantages. Uh, It wasn't a hard scrabble existence. You know, my parents were never wealthy at all, but they were certainly, I never wanted for anything. You know, I had a really, really happy childhood. And I pretty much, my priority in life is to pretty much do what I want. And at the age of 61, I've pretty much done that. So I always say, if I live to be 122 and my life is just nothing but hard road from now on, I'll broken even because I've had 61 <laughs> good years. So, I mean, I think being a self-made man sometimes means that, you know, you've, you've overcome adversity and, you, you know, you've fought against the odds. And um, I feel 
I don't think things have necessarily been handed to me professionally, but I think things were handed to me that enabled me to do what I wanted to do professionally. So in that respect, I'm not a self-made man. When you were young and you were hitchhiking, do you still do that? No, I wish I could. It's tougher. The last time I hitchhiked, I think, was early 80s. You know, and even then, it got to be people who would pick me up would would say one of two things. Jesus, what are you doing hitchhiking out there? You're going to get yourself killed. Or, I don't usually pick up hitchhikers and they wanted me, they were begging me to say, I'm not going to hurt you. But there was this <laughs> undercurrent of violence. Either you, something violent is going to happen to you or please don't do something violent to me whenever I entered a car toward the end of it. It wasn't the same vibe that there was in the 70s when I was hitchhiking where... You know, you could get picked up by somebody, you know, with drugs. And, right. You know, you'd be doing cocaine or uh, marijuana in the car and just sailing along and having a high and mighty time. And, oh, this is where I turn. And they say, you know, you're out front shivering in the two-degree weather and some, you know, Navy guy picks you up and, uh, you know, you got to present yourself as uh, some kind of... Uh, you know, kind of what he wants. One of the things about hitchhiking that I loved is you immediately have to size up people and um, figure out how you can be their most pleasant ride, you know, so that, you know, you can create an, an aura of goodwill as you're going down the road. And I always regarded that in some respects as my journalism school, you know, because what you really want to do in journalism is is connect with with the people that you're you're sourcing with. And so hitchhiking was far more beneficial to me than, you know, learning how to make a pyramid paragraph and all that other stuff. Well, I was going to say, is that uh, what you're describing as the, the, the experience of building a relationship with the people you're hitchhiking with, that's a lot like journalism. Exactly. So it's, it's like, it's a journalism. metaphor for journalism. Yes. It really is very helpful, you know. And also being able to throw yourself into a variety of experiences that you're, you know, you're only somewhat ready for. Uh, that's the aspect of journalism I still like best is you never know, you know, when you're going to uh, trip over something that is fabulous to know, you know. Um, and it's always fun to, you know, be able to pick the brains of highly successful people or at least notorious people, some of them not successful, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a great... It suits me, you know? I like doing it. Is there a good way to follow your work? Like, I don't think you're on good social question. media, are you? I don't know. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Facebook. I mean, I'm, I most of my Twitter stuff, I do live tweet a lot of the Timberwolves games now just because it seems to uh, work well um, to throw out impressions as they go along um, but so at Britt Robson I, be, I believe is the Twitter or you could just you know if people look me up on Twitter that way I guess you could I think my Google I mean you can go to minpost.com I have an archive there and my archives I don't know if City Pages City Pages I think deleted archives for a while they were kind <laughs> of uh, I had a run in with the uh, the last regime at City Pages was um, was a, was a uh, a regime that wasn't consonant with the way I 
I enjoyed going about things. And so I left them in a rather public manner. Uh, they had just taken over this group called, uh, I can't even remember the name Village of it. Voice Media. Yeah, Village Voice Media, but they were something else before they became... New Times. Village. New Times, that's what it was. The New Times chain bought the Village Voice chain. The Village Voice chain had bought the paper from the founder of uh, City Pages, Tom Bartell at the time. And so, um, anyway, what I said when I left was... Um, a guy from Denver hired an editor from Cleveland to run a newspaper in Minneapolis, and I'm not going to be a part of that. Um, because it was a formula they were plugging in, and I disliked the formula intensely. It was, uh, to the extent it was political at all, it was libertarian. Um, they really favored uh, kind of what now is called clickbait things, where, you know, you, you try to hit people's hot buttons without identifying why those buttons are hot. Um, it just was, it, I just regard them as a very crass organization. And the, the, the guy they hired to be the editor was the epitome of that. And so when they came in and said, um, this guy was kicking ass for the competition, and so we decided we'd hire him <laughs> so he could kick ass for us. And, you know, that was supposed to, you know, make everybody around this table he was being introduced at feel really good about him. And I thought, give me a break. I mean, if this is the way it's going to be, we're out to kick ass you know, knowing what they, the kind of what they regard as kicking ass. So I was, res, I resigned that day, and, uh, and so you don't think your archives are up because of it? Oh uh, well, yeah, that's, that's right. that was the original. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think there have been times where I've tried to find something I've written in city pages, and it's harder than it should be. Uh, but I would imagine um, if you put Britt Robson and city pages down, you might be able to find individual stories, if not an archive. And that some of my best stuff was at City Pages. I mean, there was a period at City Pages where um, the editor was Steve Perry, who was a great editor, um, but Monica Bauerlein, who is now a co-editor at Mother Jones, was on that staff. David Schimke, who edited the Utney Reader, uh, was on that staff. Will Hermes and uh, John Dolan, who were two of the better writers at Rolling Stone, uh, were on the, the music staff on the music side. Um, it just Jennifer Vogel, who was uh, went on to edit The Stranger and wrote a great book about her father, uh, and now writes for a variety of publications, was on that staff. It was just a great group of people, and uh, so uh, I treasure that time. So yeah, that would be a place if somebody wanted to read some stuff. You know, some of it's twenty years old, but that would be a place. Or more recently, I mean, I wrote a column about the wolves this morning. A min post that was media day yesterday, so you could read most of my wolf stuff at media min post and uh, notorious uh, wandering sound is what it used to be called e music, but now it's called wandering sound. There are two record reviews up today that I wrote last week. One on John Luther Adams, who wrote this classical work commissioned by the Seattle Symphony called Become Ocean, which is kind of about climate change in its own way, and it's this really wonderful, fascinating orchestral piece, which I'm really happy about because I don't know classical music that well, and I'm only now getting the confidence to really begin to write about it some. And then another is a jazz piece um, by uh, Ryan Keberly called Into the Zone, and that's an interesting piece. And I just got through, I usually do about four or five reviews a month for jazz times. Um, so... You know, just music and sports uh, are 
over politics right now because politics in Minnesota went under recently, or at least my access to it and their desire to have freelancers there now are cut back to a skeleton staff and they can uh, file for bankruptcy a while back. So less yeah, politics right now. Not not so good at payroll. And that's you know, and that's a lot of our freelance journalists. I mean I make forty percent less now than I did five years ago. Uh, and you know, if I was in my thirties I I might not be able to do journalism. I might not have the nest egg and the ability to um, ride it out like I can now. You know, I mean I'm sixty one so the amount of money I make will be enough to sustain me and fortunately my wife and I have been able to save enough money where we'll be able to provide for our son um, you know provided all this is with a caveat that the US economy doesn't go down the drain which is I think highly possible I think we're an empire in decadence and so I do think that uh, there's a great possibility that the, the world will go through some turbulence to the point of where everybody's bottom line will be greatly affected in the next 10 or 15 years. But Well, for now, I'm hopeful that you will continue writing excellent work. People should look it up, find you. I really appreciate you taking time to chat with me. Sure. My pleasure.